0: y'all and welcome to the Feasting on Truth podcast. I'm Erin Warren and I'm so glad that you are here. We are nearing the halfway point of our study of the Gospel of Mark called Unexpected Savior and y'all every week I continue to be in awe of the masterful way in which Mark tells us who Jesus is and why he came. Before we get to chapter 7, I want to remind you all about my new devotional coming out in January. It's called Everyday Prayers for Faith, Finding Confidence in God No Matter What. It's a 30-day journey through the promises of God. Um, And I think it's so appropriate that as I prepare to release this in Mark, we Have seen um, so many times how our view of God affects our faith in God and that um, faith is really at the core um, at the foundation of our belief and the fruit in which it provides in our life Um, and that is how we go through hard times that is how we face Um, the things that this world continues to throw at us. It is the confidence in knowing who God is, knowing his character deepens our trust in him. And what fuels our confidence is knowing that he is faithful to keep every single one of his promises. And he is faithful to be who he says he is. Um, but we need to know what those promises are. And so this devotional will help you see not only the character of God, but how he is faithful to keep his promises. You can pre-order through my website at feastingontruth.com. Mark chapter 7. Oh, y'all. This one did require quite a bit of cultural context study. It's a great example of why we need context to better understand scripture. It's not changing the meaning based on different cultures, it's understanding what these verses meant to the original audience first, so that we can better interpret and apply them to our life today. Um, There were several moments in this chapter that were talking about something that was going on in the culture that we don't have a real firm grasp on. Um, And so taking the extra time to go to a cultural commentary that, that has a little bit more of that history and background information, helps us see the intent that Mark has in these passages. And y'all, this one closes with one of my favorite Man of Sorrow moments. Um, He is our unexpected Savior. And I love the picture that Mark gives us as he heals the deaf and mute man. Here is Mark chapter 7. Hey y'all, welcome
1: to week eight of Unexpected Savior, an inductive Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. Um, We are in Mark chapter seven. Before I get there though, let's open up in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, um, I am just so grateful. I'm so, so grateful, Lord, um, for the opportunity to come to your word together. Lord, for the opportunity to share your truth. Lord, this chapter brings us so much hope, Lord, and we're just so thankful for who you are. Lord, let us not miss it. Um, Let us have eyes to see and ears, Lord, ears to hear. Lord, let us have hearts and minds to understand what it is that you have for us. Lord, I just pray that as your word goes out, um, God, that you would overcome my sinful nature, overcome my humanity, Lord, and I stand under the authority of your word, Lord, let your truth be shared um, and let it go out and do um, what it purposes, of, like what you have purposed for it. And um, may it not return void, but to fall on good soil and to cause life and fruit to sprout and grow in faith. In your name I pray, amen. We always want to. always kind of start with this context review, and um, this week particularly, I think we are going to find it um, very appropriate and a good reminder because of the themes and the audience of Mark's gospel. So Mark is writing to show who Jesus is and why he came. Um, The study is called "Unexpected Savior" because Mark kind of wrote against challenging. The expected ideals of the Messiah. Um, I think he did it both in their culture today, but for us um, then, but for us today also um, kind of helps reset what it is that Jesus came to do. Um, and who he is. I think sometimes we come with our own expectations of who Jesus is and what we want him to do for us. And so I've loved seeing the different ways that he kind of teaches against the things that even we today um, fall um A victim to sometimes um, into a way of thinking. Um, He shows Jesus not as this conquering king, but as a man of sorrows and a servant. We have a really big man of sorrows moment in Mark chapter seven. It's one of my favorites. Um, So, chapter one, we had this introduction that was this creation parallel. Um, It's just so fascinating. He's the more, Jesus is the more imperfect Adam, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam prevailed um Jesus has come to preach the good news he calls us to repent and believe the first eight chapters really focus on who Jesus is and we see in chapters 1 and 2 this strong theme of what Jesus has authority over and we've continued to see that throughout each week um but early on it was um the, he has authority over the law demons sickness wild animals sabbath um chapter 3 he came to restore what was broken and defeat Satan and establish a new family. Um, That's going to be big for tonight. Uh, Chapter four, Jesus is God. He has all, this was the parable chapter that had all these parables about faith, that faith comes through hearing the word, believing the word and the fruit of a changed life. Um, And it, all of that is only possible through our proximity to Jesus. And it kind of culminated with the story proving the point that, the, that God's word through Jesus has the power to save. And we saw that through um, the calming of the sea. Chapter five, Jesus makes us clean and he brings the dead to life. In chapter six, he is all we need. We are completely satisfied in Jesus alone. Um, and we saw this ultimate picture. Remember the threefold picture of Jesus as God as he walked on water with his glory passing by and declares, I... Am. And that is what is going to lead us into chapter seven. And so we want to keep, um, remember chapter markers, verse markers were not in the original Um book of Mark. And so it was meant to be read. So that story leads right into what we are going to to read in chapter seven. Um, this chapter is such great hope for us as Gentiles. Um, is Mark is using a huge, big insider outsider motif this week. Um, he has just proven that he is God. And that is important that means that Jesus has authority and that is the backdrop as we move into chapter seven so let's start with our first section here now when the pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem remember he's still in the region of Galilee we're getting close to when he's going to move to Jerusalem but all these scribes (laughs) have come from Jerusalem to check out Jesus to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things that you do. So we heard a very (laughs) often repeated word here in this section, tradition. Um, we see just real quick at this aside kind of explaining Jewish tradition. So that's how, um, it's, that's when it's important for us to know that, um, he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience. And so he kind of has these asides. We're going to see another one here in a minute, but that kind of, um, explains what's going on because they may not have the cultural context. Um, and So he quotes Isaiah 29, 13, talking about how um, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Um, They are placing man above God. Um, We have seen not a very favorable view of the Pharisees on the whole throughout, um, actually throughout all of the Gospels, um, but certainly as we have been really studying through Mark, um, but y'all this, this idea of of the traditions of man and, and placing what man desires over God, that's, that's the root of all sin. That's been the problem since the garden of Eden, since Genesis chapter three, it's a desire to be like God. It's a desire to, um, to do the things to take his place in our own lives, um, for us to have our own authority and to, um, to and it's rooted in this idea that God is holding out on us, that he's holding something back from us. And that if we would be in charge, then that wouldn't happen. Um, if you read a few verses, um, it's always a good idea when we have these quoted verses, especially in Mark, because Mark does not quote Compared to the other gospel writers, he does not quote much of the Old Testament to go back and not only read that one verse, but to read it in context and kind of read this whole passage. And if you read a few verses down in Isaiah 29, 16, Isaiah says, um, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of whom he formed it, he has no understanding. We see this kind of flip upside down where what is made is trying to become the maker. And um, they are doing this through this idea of tradition. So this was our one of our key repeated words that we defined this week. Miriam um, webster defines it as an inherited, established or customary pattern of thought, action or behavior, such as a religious practice or a social custom. We have traditions that we have in our families um, for holidays, um, just different things that we do. It's this kind of, um, pattern of thought or behavior that, that happens. Um, but it's rooted, um, in people. Um, the Greek word is a handing down. Um, it comes from two ro- root words. So we have that, um, root word that means close beside, um, and to give over. So it's, um, the helps word studies describes it as, um, properly, give or hand over from close beside. So it's referring to tradition as passed from one generation to the next. Um, and so what we're seeing here is, is these traditions were something that were born of man, not of God. They are the rules of man, not the worship of God. They are not as concerned about the worship of Yahweh as they are about the rules and traditions that have been established. Um, uh, This week has several instances where we, um, it is necessary for us to come to some sort of cultural commentary to help us kind of understand because we are living in 21st century America, not in um, 64 AD. So, this uh, tradition of washing the hands before a meal and washing your hands when you came back from the marketplace is not in the Old Testament. In fact, most scholars believe that it was not established until after the closing of the Old Testament. Um, if you think back to Mark 2, we talked about the rules that were added on by the Pharisees. Um, and um You know, so there was this idea that, you know, maybe when we talked about this um, in Mark five with the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years that, you know, by by her pressing through the crowd, how these other people were unknowingly being made unclean. And so one of the ways that they were trying to combat that was they would just created this tradition that you would wash your hands when you came back. And it was a ceremonial washing. It's, it's not like a wash your hands before supper, kids. Um, uh, they had this el- all these elaborate rules of how you would wash your dishes. All of it extra biblical, extra on top of scripture. Um, and so Jesus gives this further example here in verses nine through twelve. And if you're like me, you read it and you were like, "Huh, what? It's Corbin. What does this mean?" Um, so the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible s- explains it this way: Jewish people could vow and dedicate property to the temple, so Corban means consecrated to God. So if they had um, land or material, they could dedicate it to the temple and say it's consecrated for God and it's to be used for spiritual purposes. One could thus render property forbidden for others use and some exploited the loophole that this practice created. One could dedicate for sacred use what instead should be used for the care of aged parents. And so what was happening is that some people would then um, take what was needed to care for their parents, but then, quote unquote, dedicate it to God, consecrate it, use it as Corbin, and then not be able to fulfill the law of God to take care of their parents. And so, The Pharisees we see here are continuing to add their own rules. They're putting themselves in the place of God. And y'all, that is always, always, always dangerous territory. And we have to be very careful where we add rules to scripture. Um, We need to be careful of how we use or misuse spiritual things. Um, I always talk about this and it's a controversial topic when I say it, but the word quiet time, not in the Bible. And so when we make rules about quiet time having to be this time where you go alone with God every morning and you have to have like your cup of coffee and a cute journal and a nice wood table and or a big chair and a blanket, you know, like we add these things to scripture. We are able to come to God's word and have time with Him. It is important that we do set aside time to be alone with God, but it doesn't have to look like four o'clock in the morning or um you know, the Lord is there with us all day long, and we need to take and set that time aside to Sabbath with Him, to commune with Him, to pray with Him. But it doesn't have to be first thing in the morning. <laughs> um, is there some research, maybe sometimes, that that's a good thing? Yes, but I just I I don't think very well at six o'clock in the morning. So um, I just I have found throughout the years how it helps free people when they recognize, see, there is not a rule in scripture about quiet time. Um, so we need to be very careful, very careful. And I ask myself all the time, when I get kind of, um, I get flustered or upset about something, is this something that is a scriptural command that God has given us? Or is this a rule that we have added on top of it? Um, so There's my soapbox for that. Okay, let's move on to to 14. So we have our Pharisees who are choosing their own way over God's way. And then we're going to kind of keep building on this idea. Um, Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. So we see again that he says something in public. He gives them the call, hear all of you and understand. And then in private, the disciples ask for further explanation. He gives it to them. Verse 18, he said to them, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him from Within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Um, So one of our other words that we defined this week was defile. Um, we saw it actually in the first section as well. Miriam webster um, defines it as to make unclean or impure, such as to corrupt the purity or perfection of. So it's this idea of making something impure, defiling it. Um, the Greek word means to make common. Um, it is, the Helps describes it as ceremonially defile by treating what is sacred some, um, as common or ordinary, so it's this idea of taking something that is sacred and um, and uh, pure and godly and defiling it is to make it as if it is common. To kind of treat it as it's not special or it's um, or it doesn't have the value that that God has has deemed on it. Um, We see all throughout the book of Leviticus and we've read some cross passes, some cross references throughout this study um, that there were laws around um, uh, the cleanliness of the people. So there's all kinds of laws. We talked about the laws for a woman who was bleeding. Um, There are laws around what kind of foods you can eat, Um, all of it with this idea that God was was setting um, uh, boundaries around um, the things that he loves. This is how my pastor puts it. And I love it every time he says it. that God puts boundaries in place to protect what he loves. Um, and so as he has, um, and there are multiple kind of levels within Leviticus. So a lot of times when we hear things like he made all things, all food clean, then we also talk about um Well, does that mean that it, that all the other laws are nullified too? And so there are some within Leviticus such as the food um, that are no longer necessary um, post Jesus. However, there are others within Leviticus that we still hold to particularly around um, the sexual laws or um, some of the other things because they are for our protection. And so jesus here is saying but there was this general idea for them that that what it was on the outside it was coming in contact with unclean people in the marketplace it was um you know touching a dead body it was eating these unclean foods that these external things were what were causing them to be unclean so There was this idea that, oh, well, I'm clean and good. Um, And they kind of have got the message got lost along the way that we are not good. We are not clean. We, in and of ourselves, the problem is our own hearts. It's an internal problem. And Jesus here is saying, listen, the food you put in you doesn't go into your heart. It gets expelled. And yes, it's a gross metaphor. He's <laughs> very matter of fact in here. The problem is not external. The problem is sin. The problem is us. And the problem is our hearts. And we see that, as I said, right from the beginning in Genesis 3. We believe that God is holding out on us. We believe um, that we want to circumvent his boundaries. We want to usurp his authority in our life. The problem, the root of sin is in us. There's a great analogy I talk about often that um, if you were to hold a glass of water out and I were to come and shake your arm, you would say, um, Why did water come out of the cup? And most of us would say, Because you shook my arm. It's the external. But the reason water came out of the cup is because water was what was in the cup. And so when we get shaken, whether it is by our own sin, our own selfish desires, or sometimes it's the trials in our life, this has been a big thing for me. I always talk about all the ugly things that God continues to shake out of me as as we walk through hard things. Um, The reason why that ugly stuff comes out of me is because that ugly stuff is what is in me. Um, Romans 3.23, it actually, the second half of 22 starts for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God y'all we are all common in our sin it is inside of us but when we surrender to his ways when we give our life to Jesus what does he put inside of us his spirit and now we have a new control center that helps us to lay aside the things that are not of God, he can help us change. We have to let him rule within us and not allow the flesh in us. Um, And as I said, there's this little phrase. So again, we see another little aside here um, that he has declared all foods clean. Now, this was a highly debated topic. We talked about this in um, our study of Romans um, that, um, It's a highly debated topic in this time, because as the early church is forming and kind of getting going, you have Jewish believers who are wanting to hold to some of those food laws, and you have Gentile believers who have never had food laws. And so there was clashing within the church. And so... Um, but I love the way that the Holman Christian Standard Study Bible puts it. Um, it says, "Recall that Mark was written under Peter's influence, and that Peter learned in Acts 10:15 that all foods are clean. Thus, the parenthetical statement of Mark 7:29 indicates that Mark, Peter, and others looked back afresh on Jesus's saying and realized that he had pronounced all foods clean." They had failed to um, fully to grasp this when Jesus originally uttered it. So we've talked a lot about the disciples' misunderstanding in the moment that was then made clear post-resurrection. And so we see this here where Mark kind of puts us, remember, we're in like around probably 64 AD. So we're talking 30, 35 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. And so he's kind of putting these asides in to kind of say, oh, hey, by the way, remember all foods are clean. Okay, so remember who his audience is, the Gentiles. So this to them would have been very encouraging. Um, If you want to do some deeper study on on some of that, you can go to Romans 4, 13 through 23 and 1 Corinthians 2, 16 through 23. Both of those um, really reference and kind of this idea of this ex the internal thin versus the external food that we eat um and so we're now we're going to build even more so we have um we have the pharisees who um are are choosing the laws of men and and jesus kind of setting and mark kind of re-establishing like you know this was not what god had established this is what man established um all foods are clean so we're finding we're we're building this hope for the gentiles because remember the gentiles were considered unclean to the to the jewish people um and we get to verse 24 and from there he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So a uh, couple things. One, um, and, and this is one of these instances where I'm going to say we We could go to Matthew's account. Matthew has a little bit more of an expanded version of this story. However, I want us to focus on what Mark tells us because I believe he's building a very clear line here. Um, And he really kind of tells us the key things. Um, Two, there's a really incredible parallel that I don't have time to go into. But if you want to do some deeper study on your own... Um, there's a really neat parallel here um, with Jesus is the more and better Elijah. So if you go to 1 Kings 17, 8 through 24, um, this is a story that takes place very close to where Jesus is staying with this woman. And so we see another woman, Gentile woman and her son in a region that, um, in the same region, and what kind of some really neat parallels there. So this one is one of the, Big insider-outsider motifs um, that Mark uses. Um, You would expect the Pharisees at the beginning of this chapter to be the insiders and this Gentile woman to be the outsider. But we see here that her faith makes her an insider and the Pharisees who remain hardened and unable to allow the seed of the word to take root in their life. Um, continue to remain on the outside so um, remember that we can tell much about a person's heart in the way that Jesus responds to them Um, we do not always have the full explanation of of the exchange between Jesus and the people um, but we have seen time and time again he moved Based on the faith of the people that um, he is moving on their behalf, and so again, this is one where we need cultural commentary. This one does not read very well in English, and so, um, so here's kind of a, a little bit of of the of the what's going on in the background that we kind of missed because this feels very jarring, and it feels very unlike tender Jesus that we have seen. Um, So this region in which the woman lived was known for taking advantage of Jewish and Syrian workers. So essentially they were stealing bread from the Jewish children because they were taking advantage of the workers which would affect their ability to provide for their own kids. Um, Jewish people did not have dogs as pets. They considered them unclean, but Gentiles, particularly wealthy ones would sometimes have pet dogs um and they would sometimes give them the crumbs at the table and so this image of taking bread from the children and giving it to the dogs was literally a, kind of a picture of what the people in this region were literally doing and so jesus kind of starts with that image but i want us to notice the posture of this woman's heart this this woman because again we see She fell down at his feet. We have seen these people come time and time again and fall at his feet in reverence. Um, And she calls him Lord. Um, Her comment to him is what flips the script. She recognizes her place in God's kingdom. The IVP Bible background commentary by Craig S. Keener says this, Jesus is making an illustration. The children must be fed before the pets and the Jewish people therefore had first claim, an um, example of that is Exodus 4.22, the statement would still sound offensive, but the woman surmounts the obstacles. Sometimes obstacles were provided to give opportunity for exercising faith. He is saying that he will not heal like pagan magicians. He wants her to demonstrate faith, specifically faith in the supremacy of the true God. And so that is what we see working here. It is a recognition that she knows he is the God of Israel, that he is the supreme God. Um, And and when um, Jesus puts an obstacle in front of her to test her faith, she does not trip on the obstacle. Y'all, we talked about that last week in Mark chapter six about the obstacle that that continues the stumbling block that keeps people from coming and this woman barrels right over it (laughs) she goes right over it um the pharisees were tripping and the woman persists her faith is true and as a result jesus restores her daughter Um, i think there is a, a part of me that um speculates because we are in this region where we saw the man who had the unclean spirits that went into the, um, pigs and, uh, remember he wanted to go with Jesus and Jesus said, no, I want you to go tell. And he goes all over the Decapolis telling, um, I wonder, I'm speculating here. I have no proof of this, but if his testimony reached this woman, um, if his testimony reached the friends of the man we're about to read about, um. Alexander McLaren, who's a late 1800s, early 1900s Scottish minister, he says this, "Um, our Lord's treatment of her was amply justified by its effects. His words were like a hard steel that strikes the flint and brings out a shower of sparks. Faith makes obstacles into helps and stones of stumbling into stepping stones to higher things. If we will take the place which he gives us, And hold fast our trust in him, even when he seems silent to us, and will so far penetrate his designs as to find the hidden purpose of good in apparent repulses, the honey secreted deep in the flower. We will share in this woman's blessing in the measure in which we share in her faith. A faith that persists. This world is going to keep throwing obstacles at us because it wants to trip up our faith. Satan wants us to hit an obstacle and say, that's it, I'm out, I'm leaving. We talked about that with the John chapter six with the people who were like, this is too hard. And they left and they never followed Jesus again. That's what Satan wants for us. But we, like this woman, when um, faced with the, the obstacles, we need to allow what we know to be true of God to press us forward and deeper so that we would, and I love Alexander McLaren is like the king of like beautiful imagery, that we would find the honey that's deep in the flower, that we would continue to persist in our faith because it is sweet what waits for us when we do. We continue to hear, to see that hear, believe, root. Um, And again, What an encouragement to these persecuted Gentiles, because they are insiders, too. So we have our final story here. Um, And y'all, this one is one of my favorites. Okay. Um, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the city of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to them, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke. Plainly, And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure saying he has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So we're back in the Decapolis, mostly a Gentile region. So we're continuing to be in a Gentile context, um, and um, so one of the, the cultural context things that I read because this one always kind of trips us up is sometimes we see these details in scripture and you're like, why, why didn't it talk about him putting his hands in his ears and then like spitting on his and then like touching his tongue, like that's weird. Um, most scholars kind of think it was some sort of like makeshift sign language kind of explaining to this man what he was going to do as kind of a way that he communicated. Um, but I want to spend a good amount of my time here on this one word in verse 34 that he sighed. Um, he looked up to heaven and he sighed before he healed this man. This is one um, of my favorite Greek words, stenazo, um, and it means to groan. It's related to childbirth. Um, the Helps Word dis- Studies describes it um, properly to groan because of pressure being exerted forward, like the forward pressure of childbirth. Um, It's to feel the pressure from what is coming on. Um, And so it kind of, it's this intense pressure that is building and building and building. Um, It is related to pain. It is related to grief and it carries this intonation that this is not how it was meant to be. Y'all, this is a huge man of sorrows moment because Jesus looked at this man who was deaf, who couldn't speak. And he knew that this was not what God wanted for us. This was not the way it was intended. And he knew that his purpose in coming here was to make all things new, to restore all things um, ultimately one day. Um, that word side that means to groan, we see it three times in a couple of different forms in Romans chapter eight. And so it is this word groaning. Um, Romans 8, 18 through 22, we see that creation waits with eager longing, um, that it was subject to futility, not willingly, um, but because of who subjected it that creation will one day be set free from its bondage and obtain the freedom of the glory. Um, for we know, verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Romans 8, 23, for, uh, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, 26 through 27, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Creation is jointly groaning, waiting to be set free from the corruption that binds it. Um, there is brokenness in creation. The natural disasters that we experience, the decay that we see, creation is is feeling the exerted pressure, waiting for the day that one day it will be brought to full restoration. We groan, um, waiting for our glorification for one day when the new heaven and the new earth um, and all things will be made right. Um, the Holy Spirit has groanings um, that this is not the way it was meant to be. But he intercedes for us toward the will of God that we would continue to remove what is impure in us, what defiles us, so that we would look more like him, which is what we were always intended to be. Um, he it longs for us Um, to be restored and to restore what is broken. And so we see um, here. um, And then as I was studying y'all, I found a repeated Greek word within chapter seven. It is this word, well, it, uh, it means rightly commendable and excellent. It's the one that we see here at the end in verse 37, but it's also the same word in verse six, where it says Isaiah spoke rightly when he said, this people honor me with their lips and not their heart is far from me. Verse nine, he uses it ironically when he says you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Um, Verse 27, it uses the same root word. Um, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And the woman responds, yes, but. Um, And that word, y'all, it's the same word for the good soil. The word fell on good soil in this woman's heart. The word fell in good soil with the friends of this man who brought him, and then the Lord um, restored him. Jesus speaks a good word. We're carrying this theme that the Pharisees were not right. Isaiah rightly calls them false. So there's this play on words, but Jesus is not like them. Jesus, um, as we close this chapter... Um, He has done all things well. He has done all things right. He has done all things commendable. Um, He is the righteous one and he is good. He does well to restore the brokenness and to restore the captives and release the captives and bring us to new life. And it's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. It's Good news for us as well. Um, There's so much irony in this one that this takes place in Gentile territory, not in Jerusalem, which is where you would expect this grand call to go out. But that it is here that he opens the kingdom and he restores what is broken. And I love, did you catch again, we saw that this line, um, this repeated word of hearing. And then what does he do? He makes the deaf hear. Y'all, that's us. That's our story. We um, are deaf, but he allows us to hear the word. And then we believe it. And then we understand. And then we bear fruit. Praise Jesus. We can hear. I want to close with Isaiah 35. It's one of my favorite passages from Isaiah Um, Craig S. Keener in the IVP Bible Backgrounds Commentary um, points out that Mark's term for mute um, occurs in the Septuagint only in Isaiah 35, 6, referring to the blessing inaugurated in the Messianic era. Um, The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so um, this term for mute that Mark uses is only found in the Septuagint in Isaiah 35, 6. Um, And this, this, um, this prophecy in Isaiah um, is entitled the ransomed shall return. And it is the era that we live in, the messianic era, the blessing of Jesus coming. And this is the life that we get to live because of what Jesus did for us as our, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God c- will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, of the deaf unstopped. They shall make. Um, then shall make. tongue tied. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing. For joy. That's us. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk. On the way, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall there be any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Praise Jesus, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Y'all. We sing for joy, our deaf ears have been unstopped and our mute tongues have been released. And we sing for joy because our savior has ransomed us. And now we walk on the way of the redeemed where we will walk for eternity. There is an abundance though we walk through wilderness now. His abundance is with us. He is righteous and he is restoring the brokenness. We groan now, but y'all one day, one glorious day, he will fulfill his promise to return and he will uh, make all things new. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for coming for us. Lord, you knew that this was not how it was meant to be. And you came, Lord, and you grieve with us and you weep with us because you experienced and witnessed and see the pain and the brokenness that is all around us every day. But Lord, you are the answer. You are the one who can make all things new. You are the one who restores the broken, the one who releases the captives, the one who ransoms us, who paid the price so that we might walk on the way of holiness, the place where we walk, Lord, Um, seeing your glory, beholding who you are, Lord. You walk with us and before us and behind us, and you do not leave us or forsake us. Lord, thank you for your protection over us. Thank you for all that you do. Lord, we are yours. We are your people, and we are so grateful. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.
0: Know that I adequately explained the theme of rightness in this passage, but it just struck me, this repeated use of that word, that Greek word. Um, we start with the Pharisees who are not right, and we end with Jesus who is right. We see this juxtaposition of the leaders of Israel versus Jesus. And here Mark gives us a clearer picture of who Jesus is, um, that he does not use his authority as a weapon, that Jesus um, does not worship his authority. He is humble and compassionate and grieving alongside us. He doesn't stand off to the side, um, high and mighty, but he comes alongside us. He grieves with us. He sees us in our broken state. He didn't sit in heaven and say, too bad, you messed up, you reap the consequences. Um, No, he did, as Paul says in Philippians 2, um, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Y'all, he humbled himself, he emptied himself, he constrained all of his godness into human skin, and he came here compassionately, seeing us in our state and wanting to do something about it so that we might be raised from death to life. On one note, uh, other note, I forgot to mention something. Um, Depending on your translation, you may have noticed that it skips verse 16, that it goes from 15 (laughs) to verse 17. It's not in the ESV, it's not in the NIV, it's not in the CSB. Um, It could be in your version, you might see verse 16 in brackets. Um, It is, verse 16 is included in the King James. Most scholars believe that this verse was not in the earliest manuscripts, but added later, which is why many of our translations remove it or omit it. Um, And let me just go ahead and warn you, this is not the only time we're going to see this in Mark. Um, It's not a bad thing, it's just that the publishers want to keep but as close to the original as possible so that we are reading through Mark's intention. Next week is the final week for the first half of this study. I cannot believe we are already there. Mark 8 marks a shift in this gospel the end of this is the end of the first section and part of chapter 8 will begin the second section of the book of Mark um, where Jesus leaves Galilee and begins moving toward Jerusalem but even more than the physical location shift there is also a shift that moves us not from just who Jesus is but toward the mission of Jesus why he came he did not come as a conquering king but a servant of man of sorrows, and unexpected savior. I'll see you next week.